Are there any prayer requests tonight? Well, it's a lot of going yeah, uh, a lot yeah. going on. Sorry? She's doing better. She, we saw them in I'm actually surprised they're not here because we saw them Saturday night and they both looked really good. Marcy looked, she looked more at peace. Her, her, her face was quieter than I've seen it look in a long time. So they both look good and I guess Bob came down sick. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, Paul, your words to us. Um, to do justice to the call that we've been given by bringing gentleness and patience and humility um, and bearing with one another. That's what we've been asked to do. Um, to be faithful to the call, to be patient, generous, um, sorry, what was it? Patient, generous, humble, bring humility to what we do. Um, <coughs> and to bear with one another. That's our call. I ask a special grace, Christ, that all of us do that. Um, take it deep within our hearts, our minds, bring it to all that we do, particularly where it's hard. Um, for our life, the work that we're doing together here, um, thank you. Um, help all of us. Um, to give ourselves to this reading and to find um, a source of wisdom in it so that we can bring faith and reason together better than we do. So that they aren't so divided and they're more active in our life. Not just an idea in our heads, but something lived in our hearts and our wills. So that what we bring to each other um, is an expression of a richness in our reason, all that we understand about our faith, um, and can defend it, um, bring it to the world, um, most of all by our own example of love and truth. I ask a special blessing on um, all of us in the room that carried special burdens, heavy burdens, particularly in family um, and kids. Um, help us all to take strength, particularly with hard decisions, because um, difficulties make decisions harder. And ask a blessing on Gail um, and her family, the loss of her mother. Receive her mom um, into your kingdom. Wash away her sins. Be with Roberto in his loss. Um, um, Roberto is a friend of ours in Italy who just lost a girlfriend, a young woman, a brain tumor, and they operated and she died. Receive her, sorry, what's her name? Illyria. Illyria. Receive Illyria into your kingdom. Forgive her her sins. Let our prayer, prayers help her on her way, help um, Roberto cons uh, be consoled in his faith. Let all of us find consolation in our faith um, when things get hard. I ask a special blessing on um, Chris and Kayla. And we offer these prayers. Bob and Marcy. Sorry? Oh, sorry, yeah, Bob and Marcy, particularly Bob. Watch over him, help him to recover his health. Um, the two are such a help to each other. Um, let them be glad for each other and all they're having to deal with. We offer these prayers um, in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.
Can everybody turn to those medieval poems? One of my reasons for choosing these poems tonight was that um, I'm, I'm, I hope I've been as clear as I am trying to be. I'm not sure that I am, but that one of the great difficulties in our age that we live with is um, the tendency to live in our heads. Um, the, the reading that I gave you, the symbolic imagination that I'm going to read from, speaks so directly to that and powerfully. Um, what Tate is arguing, I think rightfully, is that Catholics in our world, we have, we have lost our way into the natural order. We live in a Protestant culture, we live in our heads. Um, we live in abstractions, probabilities. I, I'm sure everybody knows that. You know, I, um, I can remember when the, how the conflict in my own heart when we had to start putting our kids in seat belts. I can imagine that did not go well with me, even though Suzanne wanted it. Um, you know, we live as if seat belts are going to save our kids. I mean, with the insurance culture that we live in, we put an insurance on, we take out insurance on our lives, we take out insurance on our home and our car. There isn't anything we don't insure because somehow we feel it's entitled. We should get paid back if we lose it. So we live in abstractions. In the, in the soft sciences, we live in abstractions. In, in, in terms of probability, what's the probability of something happening? That's the way we live. And one of the costs of that is that we, we, we don't engage the natural world any longer. And I believe in some ways that affects the way we relate to each other. Um, it's not another concrete person with all of that person's graces and all of that person's sins. Um, to, to bear the concrete world in our minds, in our hearts, is the work I of a saint. I'm going to put it that strongly. We've all been called to that. Yeah, I mean, Chester's line earlier, I mean, it's, I want to come back. It's easy to live in moralisms. We can moralize on other people forever. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. The rap music, to me, is the most perfect expression of Protestant moralizing. It's all moralizing, hectoring. It's like Hector barking at somebody. Expressions of love? Another thing. So one of the problems of the modern world is that we live too much in our heads. Um, we've lost our way into the natural order, and in some ways I'm saying that means we've lost our way into each other. To love in the concrete thing is a very different thing from loving... You can pray for all the people in Japan, <laughs> right? <laughs> Bearing the burdens of another person concretely? Different order of experiences. So, so one of my reasons for going back to these poems is because they're, they belong to a medieval period before the Reformation and the modern world took place. And you know from your brief experience here, those of you who've been here longer know it, that one of the reasons I, I read the lyrics that we do is because the lyrics always return us to a concrete experience. The, to me, that's the, the great poets do that. But they always do it in a, reveal, in a way to reveal something we didn't see before. Yeah? A wind hover showing Christ. A four-year-old girl participating in the cross. The, the beauty of those poems is that they are a reminder that, that nothing, I'm going to, uh, nothing, underline that, nothing goes on in our world, in the concrete order, that doesn't involve God. 
If he's here, said the fall of a sparrow, right? He looks after the hairs on our head. There's nothing, there's nothing there's, he's always watching us. How receptive are we to that? How much do we believe it? How much does it govern our life? How much strength do we take from that in, in our faith? Or is our faith in our heads? I may be putting this too strongly, I'm not sure. Yes? No? <laughs> um, one of the reasons I wanted to go back to these poems tonight is because they come from a medieval world. It was still a, a, um, a God-centered, a theocentric world. was God-centered. We live in an anthropocentric, a man-centered world now. And people, people could not ex- have any self-understanding. They could not look at themselves without feeling that whatever was going on in their life was a part of nature. It involved nature. It goes without speaking. One of the, uh, Suzanne gardens a lot, and she, she always brings in cut flowers. I mean, she goes to get live flowers all the time. We, if you've ever been to our house, you know you'll, you'll come in and you'll see flowers. The house will be filled with gargo- gargoyles, these statues of grotesque figures, because I think the grotesque is really important, and flowers. Put those two things together. <laughs> she gardens. I mean, she loves, she loves the garden. Um, Sometimes I imagine her out there talking to herself. Um, and the flowers. Um, anyway, these poems are from that world. It's a Christian worldview. So it's a reminder of something that once was, that can be, um, but something we've also lost. I think I'm, I'm going to make a generalization here. The, I may get hung by the women in the class, but it, or the men, I'm not sure. I think women are more in, intuitively connected to nature than men. But from having, being able to have a child, you know, that it's a part of their life, that, that women are f- far more intuitive about this. Um, I also believe some of that's being lost in our world, but in women. But here, um, traditional ballads, The Three Ravens. And remember that all of these lyrics like this at that time would have been sung in a court and sung to a lyre, the music of a lyre. So they, it's so appropriate to see them in the, in the lyric tradition you know, where they belong. So, The Three Ravens. <clears throat> there were three ravens sat on a tree, down a down, hey down, hey down. There were three ravens sat on a tree with a down, hey down, hey down. There were three ravens sat on a tree, they were as black as they might be, with a down dairy, 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 down, down. The one of them said to his mate, Where shall we our breakfast take? Down a down, hey down, hey down. Down in yonder green field, there lies a knight slain under his shield. His hounds, they lie down at his feet, so well they can their master keep. His hawks, they fly so eagerly, there's no fowl, dare him come nigh. Down a down, hey down, hey down. Down there comes a fallow doe, as great with young as she might go. She lifted up his bloody head and kissed his wounds that were so red. Down a down, hey down, hey down. She got him up upon her back and carried him to earthen lake. She buried him before the prime. She was dead herself ere even song time. 
down and down, he down, he down. God send every gentleman such hawks, such hounds, and such a leman, such a sweetheart. Down and down, he down, he down. I, um, this is a side note I was reminded of when I was reading this. When I did my dissertation, um, early on I decided to do my dissertation on um, Hawthorne, the Scarlet Letter. First time I read Scarlet Letter was in college, and when I was done with it, I cried. I could, if any of you have read it, you know when Dimsdale ascends the scaffold to the end. He half makes a, a confession of his sin. He's a, he's a minister in a New England um, community. He's the father of the girl, a little girl called Pearl, and the mother of the Pearl is a woman named Hester. She carries the scarlet letter, the A, that marks her as an adulterer. So she's a, a scourge and a, a scandal, a shame to the whole community. She's forced to wear that to single her out as a punishment for her adultery. Dimsdale's not bearing it. He's the minister. He's, he's the pastor of this community. But at the end, he ascends this, calf, this um, scaffold, and it's, it's, it's an inauguration moment. And in my mind, I believe that, that Hawthorne saw that as the beginning of something new. I believe it's Hawthorne refounding a Protestant community. That the, the hatred of evil and the way it isolates people, he answers it in that novel. I think he's doing something extraordinary. Anyway, there's a moment when Hester and Dimsdale meet in the forest long after the adultery. It's during this period when she has to carry the A, he doesn't. And there's a moment, I can't remember it. God, my mind's going, I can't remember it. Something happens with Pearl, their daughter, who's... Um, uh, mischievous and sparkling and narrowly staying out of trouble. And there's a moment where something happens with nature, and if you read the novel, you realize that in Hawthorne's mind, nature was approving of something. Now imagine that, because we think of nature in our world, the scientific world, is full of impersonal vectors and forces. This is 19th century, and Hawthorne's describing a scene which nature is approving of what's going on. We've just completely lost that sense. Here, we have this beautiful description of these animals gathering around th this fallen knight and this deer coming to his aid and burying him at the cost of her own life. And it's a wonderful celebration of the way in which nature um, responds to man. And I'm trying to think, um, where, in, where in our work together, Faulkner, we, I'm trying to think. We recently we we were reading. We did something together where nature affirmed something. I can't remember what it was. Nature takes out mink at the end. No, it's a community taking out mink. Um, no, nature at the end when he lays down. Oh, receiving him. Yeah. I can't remember, but the really great poets are more sensitive to this. I mean, they show this sort of thing going on. <clears throat> so that even in contemporary poetry, you still get something like that. Can you look at Timur Mortis? <clears throat> Second poem. Timur Mortis, contribut me. Um, the fear of death dismays me. That's the Latin for the fear of death dismays me. Okay. Timur Mortis. In, so the church is, this is, the church, the famous line of the church is um, memento mori, remember death. This is another line, I think it's taken from the prayer of the dead in the Catholic rituals, um, that would have been recited in the prayer of the dead. 
Timor mortis contribute me. The fire of death dismays me. So, in what a state soever I be, Timor mortis contribute me. As I went on a merry morning, I heard a bird both weep and sing. This was the tenor of her talking. Timor mortis contribute me. So out of nature is a reminder. Because, oh God, if we had our eyes and ears open, is there anything in nature that doesn't die? Everything in nature is passing. So are we. So it's like here's an answering voice in nature speaking, expressed through, through its own voice. We're dying. Timor mortis, contribute me. I asked that bird what she meant. I am a musket, both fair and gent. For dread of death, I am all shent. Timor mortis, contribute me. When I shall die, no, no day, what country or place I cannot say. Wherefore this song, sing I may, Timor mortis, contribute me. Jesu Christ, when he should die, to his father he gan say, Father, he said in Trinity, Timor mortis, contribute me. All Christian people behold and see, this world is but a vanity and replete with necessity. The one necessity is that we're all, Father keeps saying, there's this five by six box waiting for all of us. That's, it. That's his way of describing it. This world is all but, is but a vanity and replete with necessity. Wake I or sleep, eat or drink, when I on my last end to think, for greater fear my soul do shrink. Timor mortis, contribute me. God grant us grace, him for to serve, and be at our end when we stirve. And from the fiend he us preserve, Timor mortis, contribute me. Okay, so when spring comes and you start hearing birds, don't romanticize those birds. Listen to what they're saying, even if it's not comfortable. Okay, Milton. Milton. Okay. Tonight we're going to finish Milton. Just to see if I can do a quick review here. There are, as I read the poem, there are two centers to the epic. Um, one of them's incomplete. The other is fixed. What I mean by that? We know at the beginning of the poem that the poem's about the fall. Um, and the, a disobedience that has to be answered, right? So the poem begins with Satan fallen, gathering his, his fellow demons and deciding that um, since they can't overturn God, they'll try to destroy his work. And he sets out to Eden to tempt, to see what damage he can do because he doesn't know yet what he's going to find. So he sets off. We know because we've already Genesis what's going to happen. Eve's going to be tempted. She will take the fruit to Adam. They will fall. That's where we were last week. So the, the moral center of the poem, and I make this really clear, the moral center um, begins at the beginning and it's moving towards the fall and the effects of the fall. Because before that happens, 
Adam and Eve have no self-knowledge, no reason to know anything. They are in an ideal world. They're perfect themselves. They don't lack anything. They have no reason to know themselves other than the way they do. But once they fall, then they have to deal with ugly, ugly things. And you, you've all read it, so you know what happens. The recriminations, the accusations, the hate, almost, the, almost close to violence and what goes on between them. And it's at that point, after they recover, that they learn that the, <laughs> this goes to Chester's point, that they learn that the most important thing that they can do is be patient and endure. And remember the lines, um, remember at the beginning of, the beginning of book nine, take just as a refresher, go back to the very beginning of nine. Remember book nine opens with Milton um, recalling that initially he'd set out, he thought he would write an epic on chivalric romances, which means his topic would have been heroic deeds. Hmm? In, in, the, in the line of Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, all the ancient epics. Um, so he says, um, I now must change, this is about line five, I now must change those notes to tragic, foul, distrust, and breach, disloyal, on the part of man, revolt, and disobedience. On the part of heaven, now alienated, distance, and distaste, anger, and just rebuke, and judgment given that brought into this world a world of woe, Sin under shadow death and misery, death's harbinger, sad task, yet argument not less, but more heroic than the wrath of stern Achilles. Go on, line 30. He said, um, hitherto the only argument, heroic deem, chief mastery to direct with long and tedious, tedious havoc, fabled not. <laughs> you can see how dis the disgust with which he looks at heroic deeds. Homer and Virgil, with long and tedious havoc, fabled knights and battles feign, because all you got are battles. The better fortitude of patience and heroic martyrdom, unsung, or to describe races and games of tilting furniture and blazing shield. That is, what's the point of all this stuff with knights with all their heraldry and shields and the, the signs of vanity? When what matters is what goes on inside, um, when you have to face yourself, basically. So the moral center of the poem, I believe, is here at the point where Adam and Eve recover. When they get through with their recriminations and their accusations, um, a peace settles over them. They, they, um, and actually, Milton describes the prevenient grace being given to them that helps take them to the judgment seat. They have to... They have, um, they have to learn to come to something better. So they recover from their initial hurt and anger and begin to forgive each other. That's the moral center because it's at that point we have what for Milton are um, the most important Christian virtues. Patience, fortitude, martyrdom. And he actually says no less but more heroic. So for Milton the active presence of those virtues, endurance, patience, is actually more heroic than anything we see in Achilles, Odysseus, and Aeneas. So it's one more way in which he's overturned that heroic tradition. That's one center, what I'd call the moral center. The whole action, and by the way, I think it's incomplete. 
and before we get done, I'll, I'll tell you why. But the moral action takes that as its center. It's incomplete because there's still something Adam has to learn. Anybody want to take a guess at this? You what, what's he going to learn? What's the most important thing he's going to learn when Michael shows him these visions? Chester, what's the most important thing? I don't know. Yeah, you, actually, you do. I think I do. You think I do? I do. I know you do. I know you do. It'll be Christ. I mean, he'll he'll look at this and think, oh, all this no, that all this awful stuff that moderation isn't going to answer. But there's this Messiah who's going to do it. So, but I want to wait there. But so this is the moral center. It won't be completed and, until he sees what it was all intended for. So this is this is. Milton, justifying the ways of God to man. That line will finally become clear when Michael shows the visions to Adam and he sees that every, the fortunate fall, as a matter of fact, something extraordinary is going to come out of this. So we can describe that as the moral action. And this is the moral center. That when they turn and they realize that they have to share this sin now, that despair won't answer it. Um, that Milton shows us the two greatest virtues in his mind for the Christian world. What I would call the aesthetic center, I, I, the formal center, center it just, this isn't going to mean as much, but I, I hope I can make this clear. Those of you who've been here know that Aristotle says the plot consists of a series of events, right? This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. So we, can, we could outline the plot easily. I did that in that brief summary of the plot. When I just described the chapters, this happened, this happened, this. That's the plot. He said that the, the plot is an imitation. Hold on to this. The plot, this, 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 is an imitation of an action. By action, he clearly meant something invisible, a spiritual movement, a change that takes place. And um, we know that only if we look at the form of the whole work, the form, what the whole action is. And one of the questions I want to ask you is, what's the mean? What's the action of that form? What is the meaning of the whole work? Is it adequate to say that it can be explained purely in moral terms? That um, Satan set off to destroy something, and he comes to see this couple, and he wants to get back at God, so he tempts them and makes them disobey God the fall takes place. <clears throat> That's the moral action. What I'm calling the formal action is what constitutes the epic as a whole. And I'm, what I'm claiming is what's at the center of that action is Raphael's teaching. Now let me try to make that clear because I know that's got to seem really abstract. I hope it's obvious that Milton didn't have to write this epic the way he did, yeah? No, right. He, good. <laughs> he didn't have to, he, he, let's, let's just say, I'm going to rewrite this for a second. I don't want, but just by way of explanation. He didn't have to do that. He could have taken Satan in one chapter and gone to paradise, God doing, he didn't have to show the council in heaven. There are lots of people who think he should have left God and the Son alone. He could have done that and come to Adam and Eve and he could have spent three or four chapters with them. 
He could have taken us forward in time to the coming of the Messiah and spent three or four chapters actually describing what went on with Christ. If he'd done that, what would the effect of the epic have been? Would it have been the same? Absolutely not. It would have been a different epic, right? The major part of this epic consists of Raphael's teaching, instructing Adam, and Michael's teaching at the end. So, and, and we know from those lines that I, that I quoted a couple weeks ago, that that knowledge is going to pass on to posterity, that that's a part of Adam's memory. So we know that the Adam, the Adam that dies and, and, and gives birth to Seth and, and, and the other figures, will eventually lead to Moses, and Moses will write this story. Where in the Genesis story is there anything about an angel named Raphael talking with Adam? Where is there anything in Genesis about an angel named Michael showing divine visions to Adam? They don't exist. It's just a way of underlining the point I'm making. There's a, there's a moral action. But the form of the whole work is at the center of this work is the affirmation of an angelic mode of knowledge, which is crucial to understanding this for Milton. Because it, it makes up a large part of the center of the poem and the end, and it's that knowledge that Adam takes out of the garden into the world. Is that clear? So I'm saying there are two centers. One is moral, it's the moral action of Adam and Eve. The other is the formal center of the poem and the importance of a certain kind of knowledge that's peculiar to Milton and I'm going to say to the Protestant mind. Okay? Now let me stop because I know that's really abstract. But let me take a sec. I don't want to take a long time. I just, but if I can answer a question here, I will. If I've been absolutely lucid. So what makes it uniquely Protestant? The angelic part, right? Yeah. Are Protestants known for being into angels? I didn't think so. No, no, no. See, that's not the same thing. I thought they were straight to God all the time. I thought no saints, right? It's not the same. In fact, I'd say my own experiences is that angels don't have as much importance for them as they do for Catholics. And I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is what I'm here. I'm going to get to it here. Let let me wait on that. here, let me come to the second part, okay? So there's, there's I'm, I'm saying there's two centers to be aware of here. One of them's in the plot with Adam. The other is in the, in the work itself and what it's doing, the, the, way, the way Milton does it. Because when, you, when we read Dante, you're going to see Dante's going to tell a very different story. And then we're going to have to say, where's the, where's the formal center, the aesthetic center of that work? You know? Um, here, the other thing that we did, and I, I, I mean, I think this goes more directly to your question, Fred. Last week, I raised this question, actually, the last couple of weeks. What's the difference between starting with a supersensible reality and a sensible thing? And I gave you that diagram. Because that's what Raphael's doing. Raphael begins with a supersensible reality. It's the war in heaven, which we have no experience of. He's got to find corporeal images to make clear to Adam, who's a man, a corporeal creature, what happened. And we talked about that. What's the difference between doing that and starting with an actual sensible thing? And I I illustrated that by saying, remember the wind hover. 
or the supernatural love of the four-year-old girl. The poets in both of those cases are starting with a concrete thing, an, ab an absolutely real thing, a real thing, and showing that there's a supernatural reality involved in it, okay? And let me, let me, if this isn't clear, let me, I'm sorry Mary's not here because she's teaching an epistemology class. I hope, I hope she can get this. Um, do dogs know the notion color? Animals, dogs. Let me just take a dog. No, they don't. Well, hold on, hold on, no, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. Do we, do we know, do we know yellow, blue, red? Do we know the colors? Yes. Do our senses, do our senses know the notion color? What's the difference between them? They, they do, but they, they haven't named them. They do? Sure. Animals? No, us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we know concrete particulars through our senses, right? Red, yellow, blue, orange, whatever it is. Do our senses know the notion of color? No, they, no, they do not, because our senses receive concrete particulars. How do we get to the notion of color? That involves an abstraction in the mind. It's an abstracting activity. We can take particular color and go to a universal, a concept, color. Do animals have the capacity to know the notion color? No, they do not, because they don't have intellects. Now think, wait, hold on. Think about how important this is. How can a doctor diagnose patients, when you've got, let's say, 10 patients, all of whom have similar symptoms, if he doesn't have a concept of an essence, a nature, because otherwise he can't, he can't make the appropriate prescription. Let me do it differently. Um, take 10 murder cases, and you've got jury, and they're gonna, they're gonna select jury members. How do the jury members decide whether a person is just or not unless they have an idea, an idea of justice and can apply it in the particular case. As humans, we're capable of knowing notions, abstractions, justice, beauty, health, you know, you name it, truth. Um, and part of our problem as humans is learning how to apply principles to the concrete case. Can you, can you convict a man if people go around saying he's guilty? No, you can't. I mean, think about the Kavanaugh case just for a second. People, because they believed he was guilty, we, there, a rule of, of jurisprudence in our country is you cannot convict a man until he's proven guilty. He's innocent until proven guilty. Why? It's our way of trying to protect a person because we know we make mistakes all the time. To presume a guy's guilty may take, may, lead to that person's death, and it may be wrong. It's got to be proven. How do we do that if we don't take an idea, some notion we have of justice, and apply it to a particular case? But is justice not a function of experience with actual events? Yes, yes. It's not some esoteric... Right. Theory. Yes, yes, absolutely. And the ancients would have said, absolutely along those lines, that a wise man understand those things better is because he has experienced this. 
and so knows them better. You all know, you've gone to bad doctors. Doctors are trained because so often what they do is apply conventional knowledge um, because they lack experience or they lack the depth of understanding. They won't be able to see into the particular case. So they'll, they'll make a bad prescription in a particular case because they misread it. This whole thing about reading has been fundamental to everything I've been doing from the beginning. We, we don't read well. Most of us don't. We, just, we have to work really hard to read well. And part of the problem for all of us is learning to make judgments in the particular case. The ancients called that virtue prudence. Hmm. Knowing exactly what to do under, the right, under, the, un, under certain circumstances would be the right thing to do then. Because it's not our reason. The church, wonderful example. The church has made a decision in its own prudence to do something at some point in history and 100 years later reversed it. Some people will say, hypocrites. The other, the other way of looking at it is because it was more prudent to do it at that time and take an opposite position then because the circumstances were changed. I can't believe all of us haven't done this as parents and your kids are going, what's wrong with you? The circumstances have changed. Prudence means knowing what to do under what circumstances, when and how. That's what prudence means. So, um, what's at issue here is um, whether or not Milton ever gets us back to the real world. And one of the great tensions of this work is that he leaves us so much moving around in an angelic world. And without ever being able to say exactly what the analogies he uses mean. When the angels pick up the mountains, and that's supposed to be a concrete image, what, what, what does that, we don't know what that means in the heavenly order. We've got a concrete image. Are we helped at all by a mountain? Absolutely, we, we can relate to it. Does it give us any clarity on what actually took place? Absolutely not. We're in a super sensor, we're in a world of the intellect totally cut off from nature. So, what's at issue here, and think about the Eucharist. I don't want to go there right now, but just think about it. The Eucharist is a very concrete thing. The reformers, almost by and large, rejected it. Catholics are saying, absolutely not. And I, I want to get back to this, because this is going to be crucial in the overview. But, you know, what, what does that mean, to reject it? What will that mean for the way that person lives his life? What will it mean for the person who believes that Christ's divine life is actually present in that, and a, a person in faith is taking it in when he consumes it. Um, anyway, two, two very different actions with two very different centers, okay? And it takes us to this question that we've been dealing with all along. How does Milton read Genesis? What does he do with it? What, is that, what does that help us see about him given his beliefs. What, what does that help us understand about him, given his beliefs? We talked about what happened with Adam and Eve briefly. I want to come back to it today. Um, um, just a very quick point. One of the major themes of the poem is the education of Adam and Eve. And it's ironic to use that because in the pre-fallen world, they were perfect. They don't need education. But in the fallen world, what have they discovered? What, what have they learned? Just quickly, I'm interested in your thoughts. 
what, what do they learn about themselves or nature or God that they didn't before, before the fall? That they were vulnerable? They were vulnerable? Mm-hmm. I would think they wouldn't think of a word like that before. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, no reason to, right? Anything else? Mary, what else? Hmm? They didn't know evil. They didn't know death. Now they know they, what they didn't before. They could fall. The word disobedience has got to have a meaning now for them that it didn't before. It's got to be real. Remorse. Remorse. Yep. Shame. Guilt. That is, they're becoming self-conscious. You know, they... They can't take themselves for granted anymore. Now they have to look at things that, um, that there was no reason for looking at before. So the whole question of education suddenly enters into this poem with the fall, what they've learned about themselves, about God. Um, and it forces questions on us as readers. Because um, we, I mean, most people who read this find God somewhat offensive. He seems to be picky and defensive and spiteful at times and um, lots of critics find problems with him, I, I think rightfully so. Um, the creation, why did God make creation? You know, He didn't make it out of love, he made it to not let Satan have the upper hand in this. Um, what about the Trinity? We've talked about the Trinity, that the f- Father and Son um, can't assume what the other knows like they're not indwelling. Um, that day when the father says, on this day I begotten my son, um, does, does, it, does it raise a question whether or not Milton's Aryan, this God, um, does it change the way he looks at the father? So those were all major, all major concerns that, that the poem asks us to, um, to have. And I, I asked, we won't have time, I'm, I want to take a minute, just if, even if it's just a minute, um, I asked everybody to try to imagine the temptation differently, right? I, I think I asked you guys, didn't I? Um, I take it that pride was not a cause of the fall, that it's a consequence. It's one of the effects of the fall. That there's, there's really no indication that there's any pride in the two of them until Satan's dream. And, and then Milton has all of these setups, you know. She has the dream, she looks in the pool, then she has the dream, and then she wakes up the next morning and she says to Adam, I want to go out. And you can almost feel an argument budding. It doesn't take place, but all of that's a setup. That's not from Genesis. And it's singling her out. Um, There's an appeal to her vanity. There's some other things. When Suzanne and I have talked about this before, and tried to reimagine. She said something weeks ago, and I can't, we can't recall it, but she said, did it have something to do with her innocence? And I was struck by that. Does anybody want to take a minute, reimagine the tempting? What did, what did Satan use? Wait, let me put it differently. Adam and Eve both know, both know the, the prohibition. They both know they can't eat. They're both aware of that. Um, she says, in Mil- this is Milton, she says, you are my Lord. He for God, 
she for him. Why would she want to leave if, you know, to go out by herself if he were her lord? Um, he for God, she for him. She loved him more than anything. When tempted, when Satan tempted her, what would have been great enough for her to disobey God and go against Adam? I'm just wondering. I don't want to press this, but I would so love to hear anybody's thoughts if anybody can do anything with it. Shot in the dark, the good she could do for both of them. Like? She did eat of the tree of knowledge. I mean, maybe she thought that was going to help her to be a better person towards them. For, for Adam, yeah. yeah. But, in, but in, that's how she saw it because of Satan. <coughs> but she was really choosing self sufficiency and hence the self consciousness that came about. One of the things that I wonder, honestly, is along the same, it's hard for me to believe that he, in the Bible, in the actual Genesis, it says, your eyes will be open, you'll see good and evil, and you'll be as a god. That's his temptation to her. So there's almost like an appeal to pride, you'll be like, but it's, it's through this awareness of good and evil that that will come to her. I just sometimes wonder if there wasn't another appeal in her innocence to some goodness it's it, it just hard for me. Anyway, I'll leave it if nobody... It's almost like there has to be another goodness that he appealed to. You know? Like we said, inordinates when I was leaving the other day. Like, is inordinates, is that what happened? That she was just... He kind of disordered the love. Like, she intended good. Yeah, but how? What did he do? Yeah, what did he appeal to? I don't, he, he why started. did he choose Eve anyway? Why did he choose Adam? He Adam looked that. too tough. Hmm? He, he actually addresses that. He says Adam would be too tough. Yeah. Because there's, oh. at least in Milton's narrative, Adam is closer to God right. than Eve is. Yeah. Eve, Eve experiences God through Adam. Yeah. So he, he, he's more cognitive. He, he has a greater power of intellect. And, and she, because it's lacking in her, the, I think the assumption is she'd be more susceptible that he could work on her. So, well, and he knew that because he started out very slowly and subtly. He, he flattered her. He got her mm -hmm. attention. Anyone who flatters you, you may listen to, and you know, what more do you have to say? But that, you keep, yeah. that's a fallen condition. Yeah. She wasn't yeah. fallen. Yeah, that's what no. I'm saying. So. I mean, I'm so aware in our world, when somebody flatters us, the pride kicks in, but those are all the effects of, here, wait, let me put it differently. One of the effects of the fall was before the fall, we, we loved God completely. There's no question about that. The, the love was complete. After the fall, we, we don't believe that we're depraved. That's a purely Protestant. We believe we're wounded. One of the effects of that wound is to turn the love, that, the complete love that we turn towards God, towards ourselves. So self-love enters the world, and that self-love gets in our way. So instead of loving others the way we do, we love selfishly, we love for the wrong reasons. Remember C.S. Lewis's Two We Have Faces, that, that there's this possessive love in us. We, we want to we possess people, men and women, and use them. That's one of the effects of the fall. But if she didn't know consequence, I mean, you would think that somewhere in there, but it's it, like when they fell, they knew shame, they knew guilt, they knew all those things. So she's going to do that without any thought that there's a consequence. Yeah, but the question is, what was the, that that she did? 
she questions the consequence because she's because she thinks in her mind, okay, the serpent ate and the serpent's didn't die, right? Right. So right. she can talk too. Right. Right. This newfound skill. <laughs> so you know she's. But that's Milton. I'm asking everybody to step outside of Milton for a minute and reimagine it. Well, I think if you go back and just read Genesis, just put Milton completely aside. Yeah. The only thing we can come up with is that he used he tried to use the same thing on Eve that got him. You're gonna be like God. And and maybe she you know, she hadn't fallen yet, but she clearly saw a dis, you know, and, and this is because none of this is in Genesis, as everybody knows. The only thing that creeps in with Milton's version of it is she, she is aware that her place is different than Adam's in God's presence. And so the question is, did, did Satan go after the same thing in her that, that caused him to fall in the first place? And I mean, and let, I mean he's, he's, he's a, an angel, he's immortal, and yet whatever it was got him even in Genesis. Right. So the only thing that really makes any sense at all is that he went after the same thing, looking in her, what got him. All I can say is that that doesn't make it say it, the only thing. To, to me, other things make sense. I mean, it goes into that realm of things we don't know. One of the, one of the questions that I have with that is, um, for her to have that, it's, it's hard for me to see that without an envy in her, for him to say, you'll be as a god. Who cares? Here, I'm going to leave this because we're going to go. Here, let me offer one thing before we leave. Satan's words in Genesis are, and you will see good and evil and be as a God. Just for a second, I want, I want to run this by you, and then I, I want to get on because we could spend the whole evening here. What does it mean to know good and evil? They don't have any notion of that. They have no clue what it means when the prohibition is there. What's being asked there that they obey God, that's it, simply. But God says... Um, or the Satan says, you will, know, you will know good and evil and be as a God. Interesting thing, we I, think, I think I'm fairly accurate in this, most people tend to think of evil as an actual thing. But it's not. It's not. Um, we know that the angels had fallen before the temptation. God put the tree there and said, don't eat of that tree, you, the tree of good and evil, knowledge of good and evil. What does it mean to know good and evil? The only person that I know of who could have known that would have been God. Because evil doesn't exist as something outside of... God's everything. He's all being. Yeah? God is all being. He's complete in himself. He's complete. He doesn't lack anything. If he lacks something, there's something more than him. If he came from something, he's not complete. He is being itself. If evil's anything, it's a privation. It's an absence from God. To go against God is to separate yourself from him. So what comes into existence is that fall is their separation from him. And then they know evil. Nobody else would, except God, I guess from the angels, because he would have seen. But only somebody who's self-sufficient could know what it means to lose it. Adam and Eve don't before that moment. They don't have a clue. Everything in their life is perfect. So to know evil means, means if it means anything, separation from God, moving away from him. That's one of the reasons I have such a problem with Milton's angels, because if, if the angels decide to move away from him, they lose being. 
something of their they suffer a depletion something of their being gets lost they won't have the power even if they do evil with the other angels they're going to there's no way they can win everything about them will consist of a lack from that point forward but anyway i don't want to, i don't want just to hold on to that thought if you eat of this you will the tree of good and evil and satan tempts her and says you will know good and evil I don't know how that plays in there, but it's something to think about anyway. Um, so it's a third party. It's something you don't know. She's another. It's another you entity that's come to her, so she's interested. Get more power. <laughs> Could it be like a child where you've got this innocence, and as a result, whatever you know, you hear something, and you just—it has nothing to do with good and evil. It's just what you do because of the innocence. Of Some part of me wants to go more in that direction because. If Adam and Eve are all good, there's no pride, there's no vanity, right. there's nothing to appeal to. Either Satan pulls something out of them, some pride or envy in whatever he does, which wasn't there before, or he's appealing to some good and an innocence that we haven't. And one of the, one of the what, pro, what, what troubles me about this is the typical way of reading Genesis for the last 300 years has been Miltonic. I mean, that's just... That's the way people read Genesis now. Um, I just wonder if there isn't. Because when you read Milton, it's impossible to go through Milton and not see him setting things up. Everything he does projects a fallen world on it. The narcissistic scene, her dream. Those aren't in Genesis. So he's already implanted some, some weakness that will help make sense of what happens when she does fall. Justifies everything. Yeah. Where, yeah. where is curiosity here? Curiosity, nothing. I don't know. I don't know. Because if they have curiosity, then they know that there's something that they don't know. Is that is that a condition? I mean, my Fred, my my question would be: Is that a condition of the fall? Doesn't curiosity come in when we are aware that we don't know something, and that couldn't have been true for them? See, I think Raphael gave us the answer, and we've fallen into the trap again. What's that? This is well beyond our ability. <laughs> <laughs> so we're sitting here. I vote for Fred. We're sitting, we're sitting here taking a, an attempted way to explain something to us in, in ways that we can understand. And we're trying to make it something that it's probably quantum gravity. Is what here. <laughs> no, God, no. Show him out. No, because Raphael is using things we don't know. We're, in every, or most of the examples I think we're being, we're referring to things that we actually know from actual experiences that are real. We're not. We're not in abstract. We're trying. We're trying to. We're trying to realize some. And we're trying to answer a question. We're trying to explain things we don't know with things that we do. Mm-hmm. It's a futile exercise. No, but he's. Wait. <laughs> well, I'll keep up with my futility then. For. <laughs> Sorry, because what? If it wasn't done in some sort of innocence, why would he have redeemed? Why would he have come? And why, why would he even want to? Right. Doesn't that make us redeemable that it was done in innocence? I, I don't know. Right. I, I just, no, right. 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 That's, that's, because it, it, Satan is not redeemable. Right. We are redeemable. Right. The very fact that you're saying that underscores the point that God makes, that Dante will make, I mean, Dante will get close to Milton here, not this, but that it's more forgivable 
because it they didn't know. She didn't know. She, whatever she did was in complete innocence. She was tricked. Um, no, other, no. Otherwise, she wouldn't be. You're right. So, or it take it takes away from it takes away from the mercy that's offered. If there's you know, she was tricked. Some however we're to understand that. Let's go on because we've got we've got the last two. Quick. Let's take a, a. I want to take a very very quick look at this. The two last books. The fall has taken place. The son pleads for Adam and Eve and offers himself on their behalf. And the father consents. And the father sends Michael to show Adam um, the consequences of his actions. Um, So Michael comes to Adam and Eve. When he does, the the two of them have, um, have reconciled with each other. They're speaking to each other when they see Michael coming, and they become aware that as they look around, the the sky is darkening. It's one of the effects of the fall, and they're watching animals become predatory. They're starting to um, look at each other as a source of food, so killing enters the world. Um, Interesting thing, um, first vision, line 445. important things here. Remember that Raphael told this is this is this is so amazing. I mean it really it, it's it's one it's one of the things that makes Milton so problematic in our world. Raphael told the story. He narrated the story. Okay? He narrated the story. Michael's going to present visions. So he's not he's not experiencing a story through words. Kill it. It's a, it's a bee. It's a bee. Oh, right. uh, more so. Yes, right. <laughs> Here, everybody. Raphael, Raphael narrated the story. Michael is, is presenting immediate visions, which raises a question. How does he get them? If this isn't foreknowledge in God, how does Michael get to it? And what he's giving... Adam, it ha- it, this is crucial to see, is an immediate experience of history. It's a foreknowledge. Um, Adam's, or Michael's given him a substance to make this possible, and then he lays out what, what becomes biblical history. This is salvation history in Milton. So the point that I made weeks ago, remember, one of the characteristics of the epic is that it's encyclopedic. It gives a knowledge of the whole cosmos. So some people have claimed that this, this epic is the epic of all epics because it goes to the source of all of them. The fall would cause injustices, would brought things into the world, and the, the Messiah that answered them. So it's all here. And now, not only taking the fall on, he's showing us all of biblical history. All time laid out in front of it. It's given to Adam through an immediate vision First one is um, Cain's killing of Abel, and it's the first experience Adam has of killing and death. 
So for the first time now, he actually witnesses, experiences death. About line 440. Um, the other's not, for his was not sincere. The two gifts, one was given sincerely and the other was, was not. Whereat he inly raged, and as they talked, smote him into the midcliff with a stone that beat out life. He fell, and deadly pale groaned in his soul, with gushing blood effused, much as that sight was Adam in the heart. Dismayed and thus in haste <clears throat> to the angel cried, O teacher, some great mischief hath befallen to that meek man who well had sacrificed. Is pity thus in pure devotion paid? So this is what he got, because he didn't deserve it. Um, and Michael makes clear that this is the beginning of the effects of what he did. So already, not only have he and Eve fought, now he's going to have to see the consequences of his fall played out. Okay, now remember, before Raphael warned him, now he's actually seeing the consequences of what he did. And he's going to have to bear them. It's like any of us when we see the consequences of what our actions lead to. At some point we, we, we regret and get down on our knees. In the next vision, the second vision, um, Michael shows him a hospital filled with people suffering all kinds of horrible diseases. So we're seeing the, the, the effects become more universal. It's affecting everybody. In the third vision, um, Adam sees some people coming from the mountains down to the plains. The plains people are the descendants of Cain. I think if you just try to ignore it, it'll want to get out of here. No, it's gone. Nice. Oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, get it? Did you get that on record? Oh, thank you. Is that me named Adam? No, no. Sorry. In, no, no, it's okay. In the in the third vision. That was well worth the four dollars. <laughs> um, it's his book. The people from the hills come down to the plains. The people in the plains are gay and light and frivolous. They have music and dancing and um, carrying on. The people from the mountains, who are the descendants of Seth, come down. So they represent um, a more holy people. The people in the plains, less holy. And the men from the hills are so taken with the women that they come together. So there's a lasciviousness, a, a looseness, a sexual looseness that takes place here. Um, Michael cautions him not to be taken in by all these sense of pleasures. He says, tents of wickedness wherein dwell his race who slew his brother. This is the race of Cain. They all give up their virtue. Adam sees the woe from woman to begin. So one of his first responses is to say, here it is, women again. It's these women enticing these men. And line 634, 
it's a, it's a good line um, because it's really consistent with with um, Milton's view of men and women about line 654. But still I see the tenor of man's woe holds on the same from woman to begin. Women are the fault of it all, just as Eve was. As if he were the one who disobeyed. Remember, Eve was strict. Adam was the one who, who was so exorious. He, he loved Eve so much that he chose her over God. Adam's right, or that's Adam. And then Michael says, from man's effeminate slackness, it begins. So he corrects Adam and says, it's not women, it's your own lightness that gets in the way. And that's something that Milton has repeated over and over and over and over again in this poem. Whatever, um, whatever enticements women offer, men still have to be accountable to themselves. There's this lightness in men. Um, his fourth vision shows us Enoch, who's the only righteous man in the world. Look at line 760. <coughs> I think it's 760. No, sorry. No, wait, six. I'm sorry, 660. About line 655. Deserted others to a city strong lay siege, encamped by battery scale and mine, assaulting others from the wall, defend with dart and javelin stones and sulfurous um, fire. What's he describing right there? Those of you who've been here should know this. A city under siege. Oh. Mm -hmm. It's Troy. It's the Homeric world. What he's showing is the Homeric world. This is where the cities come into existence and where all the wars and all the epics start. The Homer's the Iliad is about the siege of Troy. So Milton, and Milton knows this. You know, he's gone from the beginning He's now in the heroic age where the epics were written. He, he's got Troy being besieged on his mind. Till, um, down a few lines. Till at last of middle age, one rising imminent in wise deport spake much of right and wrong, of justice, of religion, truth, and peace, and judgment from above, hit old and young um, exploded. This is Enoch. So Enoch brings into this um, heroic world this Homeric and Virgilian world, um, a truth from another dimension. So this is Homer's critique, I mean, sorry, Milton's critique of Homer, again. Um, Enoch, on, it actually is described in line 700. And then comes the flood, line 750 or so. And in their palaces where luxury late reigned, because all the cities are now given over to luxury and um, this effeminate um, pleasure-seeking and self-indulgence. Where luxury late reigned, sea monsters whelped and stabbed of mankind so numerous late, all left in one small bottom, swum, embarked. How didst thou grieve then, Adam, to behold, because Milton's describing watching Adam watch this, be another flood of tears and sorrow, a flood thee also drowned, and sunk thee as thy sons, till gently reared by the angel. On thy feet thou stoodest at last, though comfortless as when a father mourns his children, all in view destroyed at once, and scarce to the angel uttered this by plaint. O vision ill foreseen, better had I lived ignorant of the future. He's seen the whole world destroyed. 
So over and over and over again, he's left with the horrible consequences of his actions. So he's never escaped them. They just pile up. Um, the sixth vision um, um, is the image of the flood subsiding. Noah um, and the family spared and all the animals to start over again. And then he sees the rainbow and asks what it was. This to me is one of the, I think, one of the most beautiful passages in the whole of the poem. And um, Michael assures him that that after the flood, he made a covenant with Noah and man that he would never flood the world again, that man would be spared. And the sign of that would be this rainbow. So the rainbow is not just a physical manifestation of you know, air and water meeting. It's, it's an expression of God's covenant um, to protect man. About line 890, not to blot out mankind and makes a covenant never to destroy the earth again by flood nor let the sea surpass its bounds, nor rain to drown the world with man their inner beast. But when he brings over the earth a cloud, will therein set his triple-colored bow. This is beautiful. Whereon to look and call to mind his covenant, day and night, seed time and harvest, heat and hoary frost, shall hold their course till fire plunge all things new, both heaven and earth, wherein the dust shall, um, the just shall dwell. So... Um, <coughs> He presents him with the first six visions, and then he has to take a break. <laughs> and this goes to this mode of knowing again. Because remember, for us as humans, the natural mode of knowing is concretely. We, we, we live in our body. The, the concrete world is delivered to us through our bodies. Raphael gave him angelic knowledge. Now Michael has given him not only angelic knowledge, but a foreknowledge of things that have not even happened yet. So we're getting a providential history in an immediate form, and I can make no sense of it unless Michael's getting it from God because it's all providential. But the point here is that book 12, 12 begins with, with um, Milk, Milton making it clear, and Michael too, that Adam's tired, that experiencing this immediately as he, as he has, has exhausted it. So what he's going to do now is switch his mode of discourse and the rest he will narrate. So he's going to tell him the rest. Book 12. After the flood, a second stock of men came. Nimrod um, tried to build um, the Babel, the tower, and it um, went to ruins. Um, and what we see is um, things getting worse but also God answering them. Because what God does is call out Abraham. Um, and where's here about line one, 125. Um, Yet him God the Most High vouchsafes to call by vision from his father's house his kindred and false gods into a land which he will show him. This is really important because it represents a moment where Abraham turns from the way he was raised, he turns his back on that, this is a conversion story, to take up God's will. Um, his kindred and false gods into a land which he will show him, and from him will raise a mighty nation, and upon him shower his benediction, so that in his seed all nations shall be blessed. This is the universal call that the Jews were singled out for. It wasn't for their own race, it was for all nations. 
Um, he straight obeys, not knowing to what land, yet firm believes, I see him, but thou canst not, with what faith he leaves his God. So an act of absolute faith, to turn from the way he'd been raised, to trust God, to follow him. Um, and then you know what happens, the, um, the, the um, 12 tribes of Israel are formed, David comes to the throne, 12 tribes, and 225, their government, their great senate chose through the 12 tribes. Um, line 245, thus laws and rights establish such delight hath God and men obedient to his will, that he trust all this to them. Um, on page 8, or I mean, sorry, line 325, <clears throat> remember the Israelites asked for king. God didn't want to do that. Um, you all know the story. Um, they wouldn't listen to God. They wanted to be like other nations. Oh, God. Um, they wanted to be like other nations, and they got Saul and suffered from that. Um, line 320. God to raise them enemies from whom is off, he saves them penitent by judges first, then under kings of whom the second, both for piety, renown, and puissant deeds, a promise shall receive, irrevocable, that his regal throne forever shall endure the throne of David. That line will go on to Christ. The like shall sing all prophets that of the um, royal stock of David. So I name this king shall rise a, shall rise a son the woman's seed to thee foretold, foretold to Abraham, as in whom shall trust all nations. Go down. And his next son for wealth and wisdom farmed, famed, famed the clouded ark of God till then intense wandering shall in glorious temple enshrine such follow him as shall be registered part good, part bad, of bad the longer scroll whose foul idolatries and other faults heaped to the popular son, will so incense God as to leave them and expose their land, their city, his temple, his holy ark, with all his sacred things, a scorn and pray to that proud city, Babylon. You know they'll go into exile. There's a, a couple of allusions in Paradise Lost to um, um, Solomon. And I, I want to underscore this now because it's really important. Milton had no good thoughts for Solomon. This is only a part of it. Milton hated Solomon, all of his wives, the sensuality. I mean, he, he just hated that notion. When we get to Dante, you're going to find a very different picture. Just remember that, because in the middle of the Paradiso, in the middle of heaven, we're going to be experiencing circles of orders circling each other in absolute harmony. And at the center of one of them is going to be Solomon. Um, I don't want to give it away, but just hold on to that, because it's one of, it, 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 in itself, it makes clear one of the fundamental differences between Milton and Dante, and the, and the role of the body. Because remember, Solomon had a thousand, <laughs> thousand wives. You could imagine what Milton would have thought of that. Um, <coughs> then the Messiah, 360. Then loose to it a stranger that the true anointed king Messiah might be born barred of his right, yet at his birth a star unseen before in heaven proclaims him come. That's the beginning of the Messiah. Now I want to I want to go on because this is really important and it's something that could easily be missed. Mm. 
think it's on line 402. Um, So only can high justice rest apaid, the law of God exact. He shall fulfill both by obedience and by love through love alone fulfill the law. By punishment he shall endure by coming in the flesh to a reproachful life and cursed death, proclaiming life to all who shall believe in his redemption. And that his obedience imputed becomes theirs by faith, his merits to save them, not their own, through legal works. Um, he um, describes Christ returning from the grave around 4.30. This godlike act annuls thy doom, the death thou shouldest have died, in sin forever lost from life. This act shall bruise the head of Satan, crush his strength, defeating sin and death, his two main arms, and fix far despair in his head and, and there stings, then temporal death shall house the victor's heel. Um, when Adam sees this, he's um, over glad. Um, sorry, there's a line, sorry, I'm losing it. There's a, there's a passage in here describing the cross. Um, I can't find it. I'm sorry, but it's a description of the cross. But let me go on. Um, Line 402 to 502, he's describing what happens with the church that comes into existence then. Um, there's, I think, a, a slight at the Anglican Catholic Church here on about line 505 or so. Um, Christ sends out the disciples to um, baptize people all over the earth. For the Spirit poured first on his apostles whom he sends to evangelize the nations, then on all baptized shall them with wondrous gifts endue to speak all tongues and do all miracles as did their Lord before them. Thus they win great numbers, go down, the race well run, their doctrines and their story written left, they die. But in their room, as they forewarn, wolves shall succeed for teachers, grievous wolves, who all the sacred mysteries of heaven to their own vile advantage shall turn of lucre and ambition, and the truth with superstitions and traditions taint, left only in those written records pure, though not but by the Spirit understood. So clearly he's thinking about the Anglican Catholic churches with their superstitions, their rituals, um, that, what, what, that the purity of the original church that the apostles had when they took it out um, will be lost. Left only in those written records pure, Scripture is the only place in which they were, they exist, and they're constantly being defiled by what people do with them. Um, line five. <coughs> Here over um, Adam is taken by what he sees Christ is going to do, and that's where we get the term fortunate fall. Felix Culpa, the, um, the, the great gift that comes with what Christ does um, with our redemption. Um, Allowed about line 555 or so. 
He ended and thus Adam last replied, How soon hath thy prediction seer blessed measured this transient world, the race of time, till time stand fixed. Beyond is all abyss, eternity whose end no eye shall reach. Greatly instructed, I shall hence depart greatly in peace of thought and have my fill of knowledge what this vessel can contain, beyond which was my folly to aspire. It, it's an amazing line. He, he's, what he's saying is I shouldn't hope to have a knowledge beyond me when all the knowledge he's had is angelic, divine, godly. Henceforth I learn that to obey is best and love with fear the only God to walk as in his presence ever to observe his providence and on him soul depend merciful over all his works with good still overcoming evil and by small accomplishing great things by things deemed weak subverting worldly strong and worldly wise by simple meek. I think this is right now the completion of this moral arc. If that arc begins in the beginning and we go through Adam and Eve where, remember what Raphael says, if you're only obedient, and Adam says obedient, why? That's the first seed for Adam that, he, that there's something he doesn't know and he wants to know. So what begins then is Raphael telling all these stories, they've continued through the fall, and now here to the Messiah. So t two lines are coming together. The reader, in not knowing what Milton meant when he said to justify the ways of God to men, because now we see. What is justified at all was this horrible fall that took place, caused by Satan, and now this redemption. So it seems to me the reader and Adam meet at this point, because now all of us understand what this has all been about to justifying um, the ways of God to man. And the result of it, it, it are these new Christian virtues, patient, humility, meekness, martyrdom. By small things accomplishing great things, by things being weak, subverting worldly strong and worldly wise by, sim by simply meek. That suffering for truth's sake is fortitude to highest victory, standing up for the truth, and to this the faithful death, the gate of life, taught this by his example, whom I now acknowledge my Redeemer ever blessed. All he can do is be grateful for the Christ that's going to do this. To whom thus also the angel last replied, This having learned, thou hast attained the sum of wisdom. Hope no higher, though all the stars thou knewest by name, and all the ethereal powers, all secrets of the deep, all nature's works, on works of God in heaven, air, earth, or sea, all the riches of this world and joyous and all the rule when empire only add deeds to thy knowledge, answerable at faith. So, take a look at all the knowledge of the world. All of it will be next to nothing, next to your faith in this God. This is where it's all headed. This is what it's all been about. Add faith and virtue, patience, temperance. Add love by name to come called charity, the soul of all the rest. <clears throat> I, I think this is one of those powerful lines in the whole poem. Then thou will not be loath to leave this paradise, but shall possess a paradise within thee, happier far. Remember the poem began with Satan saying, I am hell, I carry hell within me. This is Adam now about to be expelled. Michael telling him, if you do this, you will carry paradise within yourself. Um... <clears throat> Let's just look to the very end. Um, so Adam's tiring, Michael 
and they turn around to see the angels coming to guard Eden, to let no one in. And Adam watches this um, with a little bit of misgiving because he, he knows that he's on the threshold of being walked out of um, paradise. Um, line 610. Whence thou returnest and whither where, um, wentest, I know, for God is also in sleep and dreams advised, which he hath sent propitious, some great good presaging, since with sorrow and heart's distress weaned I fell asleep, but now lead on. In me is no delay with thee to go, is to stay here. Without thee here to stay is to go hence unwilling. So Eve has given herself to what they're about to um, take on. Thou to me art all things under heaven, all places thou, who for my willful crime art banished hence. This furthers consolation, yet secure I carry hence. Though all by me is lost, such favor I and worthy am vouchsafe. By me the promised seed shall all restore. That's her consolation. <clears throat> so spake our mother Eve, and Adam heard well pleased, but answered not. For now to nigh the archangel, archangel stood. From the other hill to their fixed station, all in bright array, the cherubim descended on the ground gliding meteorous, an evening mist, as evening mist risen from a river or the marish glides and gathers ground fast at the laborer's heel, homeward returning, high in front advanced, the brandished sword of God before them blazed, fierce as a comet, which with torrid heat and vapor as the Libyan air adjust began to parch that tempered climb. So the effects of the fall are showing. It's like, you know the, the difference when we, it's a sweltering hot day, it, it just suffocates. It's as if Eden right now has been taken over with this intemperate heat. Whereat, in either hand the hastening angel caught our lightning, our lingering parents, and to the eastern gate led them direct and down the cliff as fast to the subjected plain, then disappeared. They looking back all the eastern side beheld of paradise so late their happy seat, waved over by that flaming brand, the gate with dreadful faces thronged and fiery arms. Some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them soon. The world was all before them. Where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide. They hand in hand and wandering steps and slow through Eden took their solitary way. Extraordinary poem. Okay. Um, let me... There, there, I think I'm going to hold off this until next week when we do the overview to talk about how Milton reads God the Trinity. You, you all know it and um, be mostly a review, but let me just ask one question here. It's a follow-up of the question that I've been asking for the last couple of weeks. The poem ends with Michael giving Adam um, more angelic knowledge. Some of it's immediate. It's an immediate history. It's a foreknowledge of biblical history, um, salvation history. Um, it, it, it shows Christ's central place in it all. Um, he's the center of it. It's that towards which the whole action has been going. So it's here. Michael shows, shows him these visions, and we're left with that. So when Adam goes into the world, he carries with him these visions. That's number one. Big question. What does that mean? What does that mean for our reading of Genesis? 
And the other is this, which in some ways is in some ways more important. I, I've got to find that passage. I'll bring it next time when we meet. What was the question you said? Well, I'm getting to it. Um, oh, the one the, you just said. Sorry? Can you repeat the one you just said? I, which? Sorry. Oh, you go, that was the first question. That I've been first. What was the first question? How do we read yeah. Genesis? Yeah. Okay. The second one is, there's a passage in this description of the Messiah in which Milton's describing the cross. Um, it's Christ on the cross. Christ is the Savior. Um, we get nothing of his life except these two pages of descriptions of what goes on around him. There's a description of the cross. Christ isn't even on it. Um, as, as it's described, it's a, it's a cross. This whole poem, the ark, the moral ark, has, um, has gone from the beginning to Christ as the Redeemer. It's passed through Adam because he's the one that we identify. He's a human. It's all given to him. He's going to have to deal with the consequences of the fall. And Michael shows him the vision and where this redemption takes place. This is God. This is Christ. When we, when we see Milton's treatment of Satan, the, uh, God the Father, the Son, Adam and Eve, and set them next to Christ, who is the redeemer of this whole action, what do we come away with? This whole poem, I hope that's clear, the whole poem's been moving at, to that point. That answers all of Adam's questions, and it allows him to say, oh, blessed, blessed fault. It, 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 it makes it possible for me to have an easier heart, to see that this is what came of my... So after experiencing all the horrors from his actions, the consequences of what he did, he suddenly sees this redeemer. The whole poem has been moving to that. My question is, when you put the whole action together, Satan, God, the Son, Adam and Eve, the two angels, and this is where we come to with Christ, what do, we, what do, you, what do you make of it? What do you say about that? Hope. Hope? Hope. Hope. But it gives him a sense of, you know, um, that whatever he did was wrong, but at least in the end, maybe it comes to a point of greatness, of, of love, of forgiveness. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Anything else? <clears throat> Tidies everything up for him. Just makes it all like, <laughs> <laughs> it is. We're okay. Because you know, Adam and Eve didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> He's kind of, he wants, he wants to have an ending. Let me put the question differently. Do you have something, friend? Um, let me put it, let me put it differently. Let me put it differently. Because I, I want to, if you look at the dramatic force of things, the, the poems, simply in terms of dramatic power, you got the first five books on Satan, four books, and then Adam and Eve, with extraordinary dramatic power. It's all going towards this moment when Adam experiences the Savior. Set the dramatic power in which that end, that that experience is presented, Adam seeing the Savior, against Satan, the fall. What what's your response? Sorry, did I guess I almost got the sense that the, the telling of the story was, and it kind of goes back to some of the questions about why was Satan successful with Eve and some of those things. So why was Satan? Why was Satan successful with Eve? You mm -hmm. know, in, 
trainer, if you will. Yep. It's almost like in, in, in it's being presented as this is the way it had to be in order for man to ultimately survive and to be redeemed. I mean, like if, if nothing had ever happened, none of these none of these chains of events had ever happened, and Eve and Adam would have just gone along in the garden and had a great time, would the would the would the destiny of man actually have turned out the same in the sense that having a redeemer? Um, Gives him something that he might not have otherwise gotten before. Uh, man. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like you know, everybody looks at Judas as the bad guy, right? But if it didn't happen, would we would we have ever had salvation? Yeah. So it's almost like okay, the you, you know the, the first gut re response is the fall is a really bad thing. But if it was a really bad thing, would God really have ever let it happen? Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> And, and if you compare the good, isn't the good afterwards with whatever self-consciousness or being like God because we know the difference between good and evil? Right. Doesn't that make for a better human being than the human being that existed before with all of the idealism and lack of self-awareness? Or No matter how perfect it was, is there a greater good to our humanity because of what Christ could do with our fall? A greater resilience to everything that was going to ultimately happen. What did Padre Pierre once say? He said once to someone who was suffering, he goes, he goes, he goes, don't worry, that's how saints are made, and woe to those that make them. Does that make sense? Because he, somebody was, they were having troubles with the church, and anyway, things were happening within yeah. the church where you had a priest who was. And right. not falling and goes, he goes, you know, don't worry, that's how saints are made, but woe to those that make them. The only problem that I have with a statement like that <laughs> is that it's, it's so unforgiving because all of us, I mean, the whole point of this and our faith is all of us sin. It, yeah. Wait, all of us sin, it, it's not an invitation for us to keep sinning, but the question is, what you, so is the person who made them irredeemable? Is no forgiveness given to him afterwards? You know, when he. Um, well, I mean, are the ones that make it to heaven now going to be better than if we had just been in, you know, everybody would have been in heaven if there was no fault? Yeah. That's my point. Yeah. You know, because of this, you're going to have to earn it. I mean, yeah. I mean, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to be baptized. You're going to have to. Follow Christ. I mean, do what he, yeah, do what he asks. It's interesting how much of what what happens when you lay it out that way assumes a disobedience that was lost in the beginning. I mean, if the cause of the first sin that set everything off was disobedience, there's no way to answer it without an obedience. I mean, a pretty serious one. Because um, once we see our sins, there's we have a work <laughs> we have a work to do. Anybody else on this question that I'm asking? The, 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 the dramatic force is so obvious with Satan, Adam and Eve in the garden, Raphael in the stories, and then we get this narrative description of Christ. Doesn't it seem a little bit tepid or... Um, Minimal. Hmm? Minimal. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
treat more as another event in the history of Yeah. The, I'm so sorry. I, I wanted to get the passage on the cross. I'll bring it next week. Because one of the questions that I have about this presentation is Milton creates Satan in, in, in such any... His creation of Satan and God have left critics troubling over this story forever. Because the, the treatment of God isn't very flattering and the treatment of Satan in so many ways seems heroic. Even, even though the ultimate end is going to be there. I mean, he's... He's going to get reduced to, to a serpent and then a dragon, and it, it's just um, it's all degrading. So, um, but we don't get any sense. I mean, even though he talks about the importance of patience and fortitude and humility, we don't get that dramatized at all with cross with Christ on the cross. That weakness, that 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 complete vulnerability. That complete vulnerability that, that, that God so loved man that he took his Godhead to a cross and allowed it to be killed. I mean, is there a weakness more infinite than that? And with all of the heroic treatment of so much in this, it, it leaves me, lots of critics, with questions about why Milton did it that way. Because if patience and virtue and humility are the great Christian virtues, or among the great Christian virtues, where's the complete self-sacrifice? The, the, the complete giving up of oneself. Complete. Which is what Christ did. We don't see that dramatized. Well, you don't see it in Presbyterian churches. You don't see the crucified Christ yeah. in Presbyterian churches. Basically, the lots of Protestant churches they they have the cross the without the cru yeah. right. Yes, yeah, so the that part of the suffering is kind of downplayed. Boy, a little I, can, bit. I can't. I remember when I, that first hit me somewhere in the middle of my life when I realized that you know walking into a Protestant church, the cross was there without the corpus. That I remember asking some priests about it because it was a new thing for me to see. But you can't miss it, you know. Um, <clears throat> I love the crucifix. I love that image. I'll be sorry if they lose it here. I've already told Father that I'm not happy with some of it. I want to see that crucifix. He said it'll be there in a picture, but I love it when it's an actual object there. Could we rewind about five minutes here? Sure. About five minutes ago, I thought I heard you ask, do you think, do we think that we're better off now than if we would have still been like Adam and Eve before the fall. Right. And your position is, I think, if I understand it, yeah, we're better off now. Wait, I didn't do that. That's you, not me. <laughs> gone through, that was where I'm just, gone through all of this. And I'm, I'm troubled with that because we're only better off now because of the fall. And do we, you know, if this didn't exist, and we all get to heaven, do we still need have gone through all of this? Do you know where Adam and Eve would have been if they had? And what is the for? Let me ask Fred. Are, are, I don't have what, the answer, but I know. The yeah, I, but I think it's really good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're taking that. First of all, fortunate fall means I'm not sure if, if if there's a difference between you. I was a little bit confused because of what you said a minute ago. But if the fortunate fall is real, it's fortunate in the sense that something happens 
to us because of what Christ did that wouldn't have happened to Adam and Eve if they had not fallen. And is it, would it be necessary if they hadn't fallen? Well, here's the interesting thing. I mean, and this is, goes back to all the doctrinal stuff we talked about in the Reformation stuff. That word, um, theosis, the, the gradual taking on of a divine nature in man because of the Eucharist and the sacraments. So one of the things that would, would not have happened, would not have happened is um, if, if Adam and Eve had just remained in paradise and, and if we just extended that forward in time with no fall, they would have been confined to a temporal existence that was perfect. But that's not heaven. Because by taking on our human nature when he was divine... But how would we wait, wait, let me just... What's not, wait, wait. So by going back and inviting us to share in it with the sacraments, we take on a divine nature so that by, by going to heaven, I mean, if that's the, 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 the banquet, the spousal banquet, you know, the, the bridegroom and the bride, all of that that we know wouldn't have happened. So where, what's going on? Would we, would, we really, would we really have had a, a true appreciation for the mercy of God? Would we have? Would we have had hmm? we not had the fall? You couldn't have. <clears throat> no. I'm not sure because you're... What's your question? Because I'm obviously <laughs> going to answer this. Would, would we have needed it? We, we don't know what the end, end game yeah, was. For them. I, there's no way to answer that question. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, but if you choose a different end game, <laughs> well, why, would, why would they have made mankind then? Why would they... How do you know we even be there? We have to be forever. Here, here's, here's the interesting thing, going, if I'm understanding this, Carl. Here's the interesting thing for me, because we, well, we can, there's some reason in assuming that if they just had been left alone and no temptation, that that existence would have continued because they were perfect. Nothing else was needed. So let's just start there, whether, because we don't know, but let's just assume, assume for a second. One of the interesting things for me along the lines of the question you're asking, God said, don't eat of that tree, good and evil. What does it mean to know evil? Humans didn't. They didn't before the fall. Now they do. What, what does that fact do to our human nature that wasn't present before when you add Christ in it because of what he's done? Because there would have been no need, need reason for him to save us if we'd not fallen. That's why the whole church describes us in terms of a fortunate fall. That something, something was given to us that took us beyond the condition that we were in in a pre-Edenic condition you know, in, in paradise, an unfallen paradise. If, if a fall wasn't the plan, why would there ever have been a tree? Yeah. See, that's, that's where I go to with this question about the tree of good and evil. Since they didn't know evil, and God did, otherwise it wouldn't have been there. That, in my mind, that also, that, that for, it's hard for me to look at that without thinking, God already knew where this was going right. then. Otherwise, what in the world would that have meant? Nothing. We've got to go. <laughs> Sorry. I, I said, Suzanne has been going like this for the last one. We're supposed to be out of here by now. I'm sorry. Yeah.